We've always been an infrastructure engineers type company. And as we grow and compete in this new larger market, we need a diverse, more diverse portfolio. Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the third episode on our series of growth strategies for government contractors. In this episode, Sai Alba, partner in Polero Maza's Government Contracts Group, sits down with Sarah Dijamshidi, President and Managing Partner of SpeedShift Advisors, and Robert Lofeld Jr., CEO of ServeOneTech, to discuss the latest and most successful growth and sell strategies in government contracting. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. The podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice we would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good morning, and welcome to all. Thank you for joining our conversation today, where we're going to talk with a panel of industry experts on successful growth strategies and successful sell strategies for government contracting firms. I'm Jeff Salinger, Managing Director of SpeedShift Advisors, a Washington, D.C.-based M&A advisory firm. And I'll be the moderator as we hear three perspectives from this blue ribbon panel on how to achieve successful acquisitions and exits in the GovCon arena. So I will try to keep an eye on the question box. So as we go through this, if you have questions, please type them in. We'll try to get answers to you. Let me introduce you to your panelists. Robert Lofeld Jr. is the founder and CEO of Sev1Tech LLC, headquartered in Woodbridge, Virginia. He's an industry leader with over 25 years of experience in IT facilities design and integration, IT strategy, and large-scale performance-based program management. Bob is responsible for developing and executing long-term strategies, managing company operations, and serving as the primary representative for investors and stakeholders. For over a decade, Sev1Tech has provided information technology, cloud, cybersecurity, engineering, C5ISR, and program management support services to government and commercial customers. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Glad to be here. Sarah Jamshidi is the president and managing partner of SpeedShift Advisors, a boutique M&A advisory firm that combines entrepreneurial spirit, industry knowledge, and deal execution expertise to provide unique solutions to lower middle market firms. With more than two decades of helping 300 plus companies with startup, growth, turnaround, and strategy, as well as M&A, she brings an innovative and holistic approach to growth and exit strategy for her clients. As an investment banker, Sarah helps her clients with successful sell and buy side M&A and capital formation engagements. Great to have you here, Sarah. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Sai Elba is a partner in Piliero Maza's government contracts group. He counsels clients on a broad range of government contracting matters, focusing on compliance with regulations, governing, governing SBA small business programs, structuring teaming, joint venture, and mentor-protege agreements, and prosecuting and defending bid protests, small business size and status protests, and appeals, working closely with the firm's business and transactions groups. 
SAI assists federal contractors in structuring mergers and acquisitions, corporate restructurings, and partner buyouts to ensure these transactions meet the client's objectives and are compliant with federal procurement laws and regulations. Welcome, Sai. Thank you. So let's get started with a discussion about growth by acquisition and the valuation metrics that are most important there. So Bob, we'll start with you from a buyer's perspective. Where does M&A fit as part of a corporate growth strategy and what characteristics of a target firm are important to you? So a uh, great question. So I think when most companies get somewhere between 30 and 70 million, they cross the chasm of small business. Hopefully it's done with some foresight. I see a lot of companies get up around 30 or 40 million and then realize they're out of small business and what do they do? The best strategy is to figure that out at about 20 million, right? What do we want to do? Do we want to make it a lifestyle business and keep it small or do we want to push it over to large business? If you're going to push it to large business, the problem is even us at Sub One Tech, you're sitting at 50 million going, okay, now I'm competing against GDIT. I'm competing against Lockheed. Their BD staff is bigger than my entire company, right? What do I do? So mergers and acquisitions become, in my opinion, a way of life to get up over that hurdle to where you can start competing. Once you're up over 100 million, 150 million, 200 million, you are really a contender in the market. You have the GNA to be able to really invest significantly in growth. So I think M&A becomes a part of that strategy. A lot of us do it through private equity because I've got a billion dollars in your bank account. It's very hard to go out and buy companies that are equal or larger size than you are, or quite frankly, smaller. So for me, private equity and getting up over that hurdle through M&A was the, the only way to really very quickly become a contender in the mid-market. Now, the second part of the question was about kind of targets and how do, how do you do that strategy? It depends on the company and, and what they're looking for. There are some companies out there that are looking for customer access. So they may go buy specifically or look for a company that has deep roots in like Department of Justice, right? I use that as an example. For us, we've been heavy DHS, DOD, health. We looked at what other customer markets do we want to get in? So we're in Space Force, Air Force Space. We look heavy at the space market, right? We're looking at stuff like NASA and that. However, every company's different. We were blessed with some really big past performance. We had some very large programs at Sev1 Tech when we crossed over into large, and we were able to leverage those. Some platforms are looking for companies with large past performance, because the problem is if you're going to compete in that large business market and all of your programs are 20 and 30 million, you're going to get smoked on the scoring. So depending on the company itself, every company has specific things they're looking for in the market whether it's customer access, whether it be past performance, or some capability. So for us, we've never been heavy on software development. One of the things that we're looking at, pretty much have been looking at, is really good quality software companies. We've always been an infrastructure engineers type company. And as we grow and compete in this new larger market, we need a diverse, more diverse portfolio. So think of it in terms of if you're going to compete against GDIT, right? You need to have the world-class talent. You need to be able to afford the world-class talent. You also need to have markets where you can be very strong in those markets and a little bit broader capability because in the small business market, you may have a task that's just network engineering or is just program management or is just a certain function of software. 
in the large, when you're talking about 500, 600, 700 million dollar programs, there's a much broader portfolio. And while you can get some of that through teaming, a lot of times, if you want to score the points with both the customers to be relevant and the past performance, you have to have a broader capability. Now, some people say there's some exceptions out there. If you're building just a cyber company, you can just build cyber. But the chances of you priming a large $500, $500 million integration deal are about zero because the customer is going to look at you as a cyber company. So for us as a large integrator, that was kind of our strategy. And that's how I think M&A plays in. Sarah, Sai, any, any input there? Yeah, sure. I mean, so great points, Bob. Absolutely. One thing I would add is that quite often we see companies on a smaller side comes to us and say, do we look attractive from a, you know, to a buyer? And when the buyers like you, Bob, are looking at them, you're looking at contract mix, right? We talked about the agencies and where they are, what the capabilities are. I mean, those are some of the things that they look at. But also, I think, you know, what is, you know, the, the nature of those contracts? Are they prime contracts? Are they subcontracts? I mean, we, we see companies that are small, 100% sub work, 100% some sort of a set aside, then obviously the buyer universe for that is very small, right? Can you still sell? Yes, but the buyer universe for that is small. So, and then, you know, getting to other layers of it, you know, as well, right, Bob? I agree, sir. What happens is your price goes down, right? So the thing about from a buyer's perspective is what does a buyer pay a premium for? First, full and open prime contracts. We score those the highest with the highest multiple. Second, true full and open sub positions. Now, one of the things you don't want to get into is the trap of creating questions about your integrity through the process. If you took credit as an 8A subcontractor under a large business, it's not full and open sub work, right? Because if you're 40% of that task and a large buys you, the large is going to go, hey, I'm not meeting my small business, right? I'm going to go ahead and kill you off of there. Unless you get a good... Prime that'll yeah. work with you because the IDIQ, they're meeting their, their goals. So those are the number one full and open prime is the way to go. I'm a big fan of IT70. If you have a customer that loves you, usually you can get them to push something to large. The other thing I would say is in the pecking order of pricing small business, unrestricted small business, which means without a designator, yeah. will always get more of a premium than 8A hub zone or woman owned. Why? Because it is like trying to get someone to voluntarily sign up for three root canals to get something out of an 8A track, right? No, no contracting officer wants to do it. In the small business unrestricted, you get a good customer, you can push that to large. It's been my experience. So if your book is 100% 8A, there are buyers out there, Alaskan natives, Hawaiian natives, right? People that can go ahead and, and do that. Now, if you have a lot of set aside, and you're preparing to be a platform, which means you're looking for a PE to make an equity investment in you to scale you up like we did, then your focus has to be really on the internal mechanisms in the company, the management team, and demonstrating that you can very quickly scale both your management team and your infrastructure from 50 to 250 million inside 24 to 36 months. And, and that's, that's another premium that you look at. Is it a really mature management team? Or is it a company tuned that their EBITDA is at their highest point so they can get the most of whatever multiple they get on the, on the way out? Depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, those are pretty interesting valuation metrics. Have those changed over time? Do you see them changing going forward? 
or are those staying sort of constant? Cy, what, what do you think? I see them right now. The market's frothy. I mean, it's the market's good. Yeah, I think it's been pretty hot right now. I don't know how much of that is just because of where we are or because of the rumors of tax law changes or whatnot. Who knows? But yeah, there's a lot of activity happening right now. It's just been kind of crazy. And I've also seen some interest from private equity firms that are doing their first acquisition or or it's like a new fund, even if they have potentially other funds, it can be set up in a way that avoids affiliation with potentially some of the other funds that they might have depending on their setup. And if, if you have a private equity firm like that and they're doing their first acquisition, Assuming you're not 8A or, or say, serviceable better woman owned, but if you have just standard small business contracts, I've seen a lot of interest there as well. Because when that first acquisition happens from that fund, they're a small business if they're set up the right way. And so when they buy you, they're going to be able to recertify as small. And there's no risk then that you're losing things and you sort of get the investment and you're still a small business, the problem starts to come up right when that fund does their second or third or fourth Mm -hmm. acquisition. Then you have to start worrying about affiliation issues. Uh, Again, it depends on how they're set up. But the ones that are really getting into the space and thinking about it have high interest in some of that stuff because it can be high profit margin. And it gives them some runway while they figure out where to put their capital next. And so that's Mm -hmm. one thing I've seen. I do think, though, that there's some sort of market reasonableness that an entrepreneur needs to have when they go to market, right? What is your number that that you personally want? Because you may not get it, but you may get a lot more than you have today, right? So in 2015, when I did evaluation of Sev1 Tech, I said, I'd rather, I'd rather keep working. In 2019, it was at a point where I'm like, okay, hey, this makes sense for the business, and I need it now because I'm over a large market. But when you're talking about even a book that's all 8A work and all 8A prime, getting a four times earnings, right, of, you know, or, or whatever you can get out of it, it's a lot more money than 90% of America is going to get out of, an, out of a transaction. So if you go to market with that kind of company and think you're going to get 10 times, you're going to be very disappointed. There's great advisors out there that you can talk to that will give you what the markets are on your book. But you can't assume because one guy got nine times, you're going to get nine times because it also depends on the buyer. If you're exactly what the buyer likes, right, they may pay a premium on that. If you're not, they may go, God, you're nice people, but man, we can't afford to do that because it doesn't fit in with our strategy and we don't know how to return an ROI. Because the day after that transaction closes, the buyer now has to make a one plus one equals three or four out of that to pay back all of the money that they just put to you in a check. So I just always advise folks, talk to folks about your business early. Don't be like, hey, the tax laws changed. Hurry up and put me on market because that's usually a disaster. It's 24 months before you're thinking about it, in my yeah, opinion. Well, and that's the thing. Sometimes we have people who come to us and they say, I want to sell yesterday. Get me out, right? And, yes. and but they haven't done any of the prep work and everything. And then they have heard of a transaction and they think that multiple applies to me. Yeah. Right. And I would like that, except they're the, you know, the contract mix, everything else is different. Right. And that's the number that they have. So I think you hit on a couple of good points. And that is get early, you know, early, get ready, get your books in order, figure out what your company is worth, track it. Right. And just sort of be realistic in terms of what's happening in the marketplace. So you know what to expect, right? 
and then surround yourself with the right advisors who can just help you guide through that. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, but but I can't tell you how many times we have people who come to us and they say, here where I am, you know, I'm 100% set aside, 100% sub work in this kind of services, which quite frankly, it's not in the hotspot, you know, of the activity. And I want, you know, seven to 10 multiple. That's kind of what I have my hopes for, you know, and that's what I'm planning my retirement on. And, you know, it just doesn't work like that. It's like KW going at 17 times. Well, if you're all cyber in every major intelligence agency, you got a good shot at a great premium. But if you're not a cyber intel in all the hot spots with massive prime contracts, you're probably not going to get 17 times, right? There are legends out there that go crazy multiples, but it's because it fits with the buyer strategy, right? And they'll pay a premium for that. Hey, Sai, you got a question in here where they said they've heard of PEs acquiring companies with small business set aside and maintaining their those contracts. At a high level, how are those transactions structured? How are they buying it so that they still get to do it? Is that a minority hub? So I think there's probably three things. What I was talking about earlier is just happened to be, and this is something you probably don't have insight in as a seller, but how the whole... PE firm is structured. And in theory, if, if they're siloed enough or each fund has different controlling individuals, there might not be affiliation. If it's their first acquisition and that wow. fund is sort of siloed, they can do the acquisition and you're affiliated with the fund, but the fund has zero dollars in revenue. Zero so people. Yeah. So sorry, their banker might know that, right? Their banker might know how they're structured. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I think another thing, though, could be I've done 49% acquisitions before where the other 51% is done as convertible debt. And as long as the seller has the ability to pay off the convertible debt, which is some risk, but I've done it with PE firms. So I know a few times. So I know the PE firms that are educated in this GovCon area are willing to take that kind of risk. If you have the ability as a seller to pay off the debt instead of letting it convert. And it's in your control, not just five years from now, it'll convert. Five years from now, there might be some balloon payment that's too much for the person to pay. But in theory, they have the ability to pay it off. Then you can avoid the present effect rule so that that transaction, when you do it, say two years ago or five years ago or whatever, it's not treated as being 100% acquisition. It's only a 49% acquisition. And then even if two years, five years, whatever, the person doesn't pay off the debt and it converts, it's only at that point where you trigger the affiliation issue, not earlier on. And that that's gives cool. you some of the runway. When there's a will, there's a way to figure it out. That's yeah. awesome, Sai. I learn something every time I do one with you. That's great. Sorry, Jeff, we went on a tangent there. Go ahead. Keep us, keep us in line. That's fine. So I... I do want to come back just to the market a little bit more. And, and, and Sarah, I know your firm sees buyers seeking acquisitions and sellers seeking exits. The, you know, what, what does the market look like from where you're sitting today? More yeah. active, less active than the, in the past? What's driving the activity? Yeah, so we touched on that a little bit, Jeff. So we, we saw, look, Q4 2020 was very strong. And we see that momentum continuing into 2021. So, and there's no signs of slowing down just yet. So we see that continuing. So just in terms of numbers, 
Q4 of 2020, we saw about 113 deals in the GovCon space broad, you know, between aerospace, defense, and government technologies. And then Q1 2021, we saw about 127 deals. So that just kind of gives you some parameters to look at. In terms of what is driving some of this activity, obviously you have a new administration in place with priorities. And so that is driving a little bit of activities. There has been, you know, mandates on enhancing, you know, citizen engagement with across government. And so we see that as a driving force. We see, you know, maintaining the defense posture. So for national security purposes, that's driving. And then, you know, we threw in there what we talked about is the tax laws changing, which, you know, now it looks like pretty definite, probably in 2022. And so with some of those things are all adding up in terms of what's happening. And then in terms of where is the activity? You know, so obviously we see the billion dollar deal still happening at the top of the market, you know, billion plus, lots of those with Cubic and Teledyne and Serco, and, and you can just name a whole bunch, right? But then you also have the remainder, I mean, the 80-20 rule applies. So we see about 20% of the deals being in 100 million plus kind of size, and about 80% of them happen to be lower than 100 million. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polero Maza production, and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.